Don't you ever wonder why the Americans and Russians hate each other so much? Turn on the news and someone is doing something. Kremlin this, Americans that, Putin this, sanctions that. It's never ending. How did this start? Who is responsible for this mess? The Cold War, after all, was over in 1991. And now we are in 2021. That's 30 years ago. Let's start at the beginning. Well, at the beginning, things were not so hard. Ancient Rus was founded in 862 AD in Kiev. Kiev, by the way, is now in the Ukraine. The US wasn't established. The US proxies, such as the UK, didn't exist either. There was a nascent English kingdom, or kingdoms. Scots, Welsh, Franks and Norse kingdoms also existed. The US itself was founded in 1776 AD by self-declaring independence, and then in 1783 by having that independence recognised. If we think about the year 1784, neither Empress Catherine II nor George Washington had beef with each other. The Russians even sold Alaska to the Americans in 1867. Indeed, if we fast forward to 1905, the US brokered a peace treaty between the Russian Empire and the Japanese to end the Russo-Japanese War. In case you're wondering, the Japanese won that war. Then something happened. World War I. Well, not exactly the war itself, but one of its casualties. Tsarist Russia. The empire fell in 1917, in the February Revolution, when the then so-called Republicans or Progressives overthrew the family at St. Petersburg, leading to several months of Republican rule until October's Bolshevik Revolution. In the October Revolution, Tsar Nicholas II and the remaining captured Romanov family were brutally assassinated, resulting in the beginning of a bloody civil war that would last just over five years. An interesting sidebar note for you listeners, the current flag of the Russian Federation is the same flag the Republicans used, yes, the government that lasted eight months in 1917. That civil war was brutal and complicated. The two largest combatant groups were the Red Army, fighting for the Bolshevik form of socialism led by Vladimir Lenin, and the loosely allied forces known as the White Army, which included diverse interests favoring political monarchism, capitalism and social democracy, each with democratic and anti-democratic variants. In addition, rival militant socialists, notably anarchists and leftists, as well as non-ideological green armies, fought against both the Reds and the Whites. Thirteen foreign nations intervened against the Red Army, notably the Allied military forces from the ongoing, almost concluded, World War, with the goal of re-establishing the Eastern Front. When I say Allied, I mean Allied to Russia during the First World War. To give you some idea of the foreign intervention involved, just think about this. 1,500 British and French troops landed in Argenschalk. 14,000 or so British troops were in northern Russia. 1,800 to 2,000 British troops in Siberia. 
50,000 Romanian troops belonging to the 6th Romanian Corps in Besabiara, can't pronounce that, about 23,000 Greeks, 15,000 French in southern Russia, another 40,000 British troops in the Caucasus, 13,000 Americans, including in Vladivostok, about 11 to 12,000 Estonians, about 2,000 Italians, about 150 Australian, another 1,000 British troops in Transcaspia, and 70,000 plus Japanese soldiers in the eastern region. Oh, and about 5,000 Canadians in Siberia. You see, Britain and its proxies had ample boots on the ground. Let's take a moment to imagine the situation in Russia. World War I was the most brutal war ever fought. Once it ends, they had two revolutions, then the Spanish flu, followed by a five-year civil war that resulted in casualties of about 10 million people and a couple of million refugees. Let that sink in. The Red Army eventually beat the White Army. The Americans, the British and the Japanese had backed the wrong horse, as did the Czechs, the Romanians, the Canadians, the Greeks and all the others I just mentioned. The media and political leaders of the British Empire were aghast at the fall of Tsarist Russia in February. They were yet more aghast when the October Revolution happened, and yet more aghast when in early 1918 Russia left the war, thus closing the Eastern Front for the Allies. The foreign intervention was seen by the Red Army as an invasion force. Indeed, it was an invasion force. Allied soldiers had secured Russian assets, marched through major Russian cities like Vladivostok and occupied some cities in Siberia. After the conclusion of the Peace of Versailles ending World War, the foreigners stayed in Russia until 1920 and as late as 1922 for Japan. None of this was lost on the victorious Red Army. Eventually, Russia got consumed within the bigger Soviet Union. Britain declared war on Germany in September 1939, starting World War II. However, on 22nd of June 1941, Germany led the European Axis powers in an invasion of the Soviet Union, opening the Eastern Front, the largest land theatre of war in history. It was Germany's undoing. Eventually, the Germans lost the war mostly because they opened this Eastern Front. When the Red Army victoriously marched into Berlin, the British and French and Americans did the same from the other side. For the first time in history, the Germanic tribes, the Anglo-Saxons and Franks, bordered the Slavs, the Russians, on the ruins of another Germanic state, Germany-Austria. What's more, the imperialist capitalists came face-to-face with the revolutionary communists for the first time. In 1945, it had only been 25 years since these same powers had backed the White Army against the Reds. Winston Churchill left office in 1945. Now, Clement Attlee was the Prime Minister. As leader of the opposition, Churchill was on a trip to the USA when he gave his now famous Iron Curtain speech in 1946, in which he stressed the necessity 
for the United States and Britain to act as guardians of peace and stability against the menace of Soviet communism, which had lowered an iron curtain, according to him, across Europe. The term iron curtain had been employed as a metaphor since at least the 19th century, but Churchill used it to refer specifically to the political, military and ideological barrier created by the USSR following World War II. Russian historians trace the start of the Cold War to this very speech. After Churchill's speech, things started to roll into motion. Then US President Harry Truman in March 1947 outlined what became known as the Truman Doctrine. This doctrine, or a foreign policy direction, was designed to contain the USSR to its own boundaries and would use US resources to do so. As early as 1946, the US provided indirect aid to groups considered anti-communist in the Greek Civil War and in Turkey. Aid and indirect intervention became the hallmark of the Cold War. So what was the Cold War? At the end of World War II, English writer George Orwell used Cold War as a general term in his essay, You and the Atomic Bomb, published on the 19th of October, 1945, in the Tribune. Unlike a hot war, this Cold War had ten characteristics. Number one, ideological. In other words, communist versus capitalist. Karl Marx versus Adam Smith. Secondly, it was East versus West. Thirdly, MAD, M-A-D, or Mutually Assured Destruction, i.e. the willingness and ability to take down everyone and everything just so one can be either, or not be either, communist or capitalist. Number four, indirect worldwide intervention using the increasingly decolonized so-called third world as the playground. Number five, periods of detente, where relations were warm. Number six, a space race, getting out to space first and then the moon. Number seven, military spending, and a lot of it. Number eight, psychological warfare, essentially hearts and minds warfare. Number nine, espionage, or spy games, 007 James Bond stuff. And number 10, embargoes and sanctions. In the early stages of the Cold War, the USSR did not officially have a nuclear weapon. The country was devastated after two world wars, two revolutions, and a long civil war. Not to forget Stalin's ongoing purges. The US came out of the war relatively well. Other than Pearl Harbor, no major geographic hit. Given decolonization and a ravaged Europe, the US came out as a top Western power. As early as 1949, the US formed NATO, just four years after World War II. Known in full as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, it was only much later, in 1955, that the Soviet Union spearheaded the counterpart, Warsaw Pact. In Asia, the US already occupied Japan with an eye towards Korea. Right away, the East and West faced off in a handful of selfishly created crises. First was the 1948-1949 to 
Berlin blockade, with the USSR blockaded West Berlin. Note that West Berlin was in the middle of communist East Germany, a client state of the USSR. West Germany was the client state of the US, but there was no physical connection between West Germany and West Berlin. Then there was the 1927 to 1950 and ongoing, at the time, Chinese Civil War, where eventually the communists won. Then there was the 1950 to 1953 Korean War, a devastating war where the South became the US-occupied client state, while the communists took the North. This war actually remains unsettled as of 2021. Then in 1956, there was the Suez Crisis, where the UK, Israel and France took the canal, embarrassing the Americans and had to reverse course very quickly. There was the Berlin Crisis of 1961, when the Soviets wanted all military to leave Berlin. The US did not want that, resulting in a standoff between the two, resulting eventually in the building of the Berlin Wall. Then, in 1962, was the Cuban Missile Crisis, where essentially US deployments of missiles in Italy and Turkey were matched by those of Soviet ones in Cuba. There were many others, including events like invasions of Vietnam by the US and Afghanistan by the USSR, the Soviet military interventions in its own Eastern European client states, and a host of other skullduggery in Africa, Latin America and Asia by both powers. Meddling and deaths were okay if either the capitalists or communists did not take over depending on who you were. Mikhail Gorbachev became leader of the Soviet Union in 1985. He is one of the most consequential figures in all history. He brought in Perestroika and Glasnost. In other words, reform of the Communist Party from within and both transparency and openness across the country outside the Communist Party. This policy had far-reaching consequences and ultimately an unintended impact. Far-reaching because it led to reform and a massive thaw in the Cold War. Friendliness even between the US and USSR, especially after the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. The unintended consequence was that it allowed people to complain about their lot in life. The corruption in the system and brought up a latent nationalism in all the republics of the Union, leading to an internal three-day communist coup in August 1991, followed rapidly by the collapse of the Soviet Union itself in December 1991. Once the USSR collapsed, Russia became the Russian Federation, and Boris Yeltsin, who was president of the Russian Republic inside the USSR, became the Russian president of the new Russian Federation, a state he technically founded. As I mentioned earlier, the flag was of the 1917 Republican movement. Suddenly, Russia went from being the most important republic in the most important country in the world to the status of trying to get funds secured from the International Monetary Fund. Completely broke citizens left were left without basic staples. The country was unable to fend for itself without a huge degree of humility and knee-bending. Yeltsin tried his best to steer the country in his eight and a half years of office. However, he was grossly unpopular. Under him, Russians tried to implement a Western-style liberal democracy and capitalism. Gross corruption and inadequacies of an electoral system were only compounded with Yeltsin's reputation as an alcoholic. 
During these bleak years for the Russians, the victors of the Cold War, especially the US, used the 1990s to encroach into countries previously in the Soviet sphere of influence. A litmus test for the Soviet-American relationship happened soon after the Berlin Wall fell. In 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. The Western countries, without consequence, led by the Americans, attacked Iraq, liberated Kuwait, and imposed crushing sanctions and no-fly zones over Iraq as part of reparations. The USSR decided to let things slide at the time. All through the 1990s, Western companies extended their reach into poorer countries. Again, no check, no balance. I'm not saying this is a good or bad thing, just that pre-1989, it would not have happened. American intervention, militarily and diplomatically, was also unchecked. The US opened a number of new foreign bases. The Russians, or anyone for that matter, had little input. Then for a period of three months in 1999, NATO bombed Serbia. Yugoslavia itself had collapsed into a civil war, a fate spared of the former major Soviet republics. However, this led to a reawakening of Russian foreign policy and defense interests. This itself came on the heels of NATO intervention in 1995, following the 1995 bombing campaign in Bosnia. It was the first time that NATO had used military force without the express endorsement of the UN Security Council, which in turn triggered debates over the legitimacy of the intervention itself. The Kosovo War ended on the 11th of June 1999, and a joint NATO-Russian peacekeeping force was to be installed in Kosovo. Russia had expected to receive a peacekeeping sector independent of NATO, and was angered when this was refused. There was concern that a separate Russian sector might lead to a partition of Kosovo between a Serb-controlled north and an Albanian south. An allied rapid reaction group was formed to provide unified NATO command for several national contingents, including a United States battalion, which had been in North Macedonia for some years, together with a newly arrived British, German, French and Italian battalions. The force was known as Kosovo Force, or KFOR, K-F-O-R. In a subtle but early confrontational move, early on the 11th of June 1999, a column of about 30 Russian armoured vehicles carrying 250 Russian troops who were part of the International Keeping Force in Bosnia moved into Serbia. At 10.30am, this was confirmed by Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers in Europe. The commander of K-4 was a British lieutenant, General Mike Jackson, with a three-star rank. His superior officer was US Admiral James O. Ellis, NATO commander for Southern Europe, based in Naples. Ellis reported to Wesley Clark, the supreme allied commander of Europe. There was confusion and chaos inside NATO on the deployment of its forces. Egos and the rules of international law were at play. Jackson threatened to resign rather than break what he thought would have been the agreement with the Russians. During the chaos, Russian troops were first to arrive at the airport. Norwegian FSK soldiers were the first to counter the Russian troops at the airport and to report the developments back to General Jackson. Jackson flew by helicopter to Pristina in the evening to hold a press conference and then went to meet General Viktor Zavarin, who commanded the small Russian force. Sheltering from a heavy rain in the wrecked airport terminal, Jackson said a flask shared a flask of whiskey with the general, leading to a warming relations. 
That evening, General Clark still seemed obsessed with the possibility of more Russian troops being flown in, even though NATO controlled the airspace. Russia had placed several airbases on standby that day. A complex standoff between Jackson and Clark started when Clark wanted Jackson to block the runway so the Russians could not land any more reinforcements. Jackson refused to enforce Clark's orders, reportedly telling him, I am not going to start the Third World War for you. Negotiations were conducted throughout the standoff, during which Russia insisted that its troops would only be answerable to Russian commanders and that it retain an exclusive zone for its own peacekeepers. NATO refused these concessions, predicting that it would lead to the partition of Kosovo into an Albanian south and a Serbian north. north. Both sides eventually agreed that Russian peacekeepers would deploy throughout Kosovo, but independent of NATO. This was a very important and telling moment. American intent was crystal clear. Get the job done. The Russians are not critical, and we are the top dog. The British position was to keep the Russians sweet. Jackson read that Russia played a strategic game and he would look at best like a warmonger and at worst start a conflict with Russia. For the Russians, it was nothing short of suspicious Western intent. In December 1999, Yeltsin resigned in favor of Vladimir Putin, an ex-KGB guy, who current US President Joe Biden, when vice president, said to Putin directly, and I quote, when I look into your eyes, I see no soul, end quote. Putin replies, quote, so we understand one another then, end quote. Putin, a hard man, was unlike Yeltsin in every way. His government wanted to put Russia back on the map. The decade of humiliation had to end. The experiment with liberalism and democracy needed to be put to the side and the crony capitalism and corruption needed to be curtailed. But then something else happened. On September 11, 2001, terrorists attacked the US mainland. The American focus moved from the Russians to a brand new enemy. For the Russians, this helped them because they had been fighting similar groups in Chechnya and it allowed them to aggressively go after those groups without the unnecessary burden of the Americans shouting about human rights abuses, especially since the USA were doing some nasty human rights abuses themselves. As Russia was building its economy, it grew in bursts by selling its ample natural resources to resource-hungry Europe and China, all helped by the blunder that was the 2003 US-led invasion of Iraq. These two front wars the US fought destabilized the region and was the moment it lost its singular superpower status. The cost locally to the US troops and money is incalculable, all the while Russia and more so China grew their economies. But the US was not out. It still had intent, intent on poking that Russian bear. It used NATO and the European Union expansion to extend its European influence right to the doors of St. Petersburg when the Baltic states joined NATO after much of Eastern Europe joined NATO and or the European Union. This was a last straw moment for the Russians. The Americans were clearly still planning to contain the Russians, if not totally overthrow the government in a spring or color revolution, sponsored probably by the US government. From the Russian perspective, 
the US Empire had reached their back door in St. Petersburg and throughout Eastern Europe. To the north, across the North Pole, was the NATO country of Canada. To the east was Japan and South Korea, both hosting US troops. Complicating matters, the US had built multiple bases across the Middle East and in a few locations in Asia and Africa. Sitting in the Kremlin, it seemed clear the plan of containment never ended. From Washington's perspective, hemming in the Russians would deliver that last final victory. Alarm bells in Moscow led to a new strategic plan. One, Europe's energy dependency would be a good strategic move to build on. Two, political dissidents of Putin would be assumed to be compromised by NATO and dealt with. Three, they would draw a line in Ukraine. Violence there would destabilize its EU and NATO membership, plus the Russian military had a base in the Crimea. That was never to be compromised. Four, focus energies on cyber warfare like a tit-for-tat, since NATO too were also active in this area against the Russians. Number five, support Assad and Iran over American sponsors. And number six, form a strategic partnership with China, the first since the 1970s. To many in Washington, this seemed like Russian aggression. But it was more a reaction once you realize that the Russians, for the Russians, this was existential. That brings us to today, May 2021. By this point, the US is so frenzied about Russia that some believe that the 2016 US general elections were hacked by Russia and determined by Russia. Others believed, others believed that President Donald Trump was compromised by Putin. Trump's Russia outreach was valid. Europe is hungry for energy. So be it. The US's main challenge wasn't to beat Russia or even the terrorists, but to challenge China. However, the Washington DC political establishment of the time was hell-bent on destroying the Russians. Quietly, the Chinese used the time to emerge as a superpower. To counter that power, Trump, probably correctly, assumed that partnership between Moscow and Beijing needed to be broken. The US old guard did not let that happen and Russia remains the bogeyman in the US and likewise in Russia, the US is the sworn enemy. On both sides, trust is zero. The Americans launched a host of sanctions against the Russians to the point no one cares anymore what the US is sanctioning. The Russians have become so adept at literally poisoning internal criticism that it borders on worrying. The biggest challenge for Russia is who's next after Putin. An unstable Russia is no fun for anyone, especially not for Russians. A succession crisis is highly destabilizing. The chance of an immediate lowering of rhetoric is possible, but improbable. It was lowered when Trump was US president, who saw the US-Russia relationship differently. It is unlikely either side will relent right now. There are too many jobs and egos on the line for that to happen. In each country's intelligence and military agencies, to have a detente without something else to focus on is literal suicide. As the US gears up for competition with China, it now invariably needs to tackle Russia. Russia, with a declining population, 
must keep the post-Brexit EU sweet, especially the Germans and French, both of whom know well that the Eastern Front should 1. never be attacked and 2. kept as peaceful as possible. If we go back to 1945, the biggest threat to Britain was a powerful Russia, who were a bunch of ethnic Slavs, formerly Orthodox, now Communist revolutionaries, with global ambitions led by a madman, Joseph Stalin. The UK was broke and decolonizing its empire. It had to leave India in 1947. It could not fend off the Soviets, and anyway only someone insane would ever invade Russia. The British Foreign Office needed to bring the Americans into the picture. This it very successfully did. The creation of NATO and the dangers of Karl Marx's philosophy in autocratic action thanks to Stalin, with big nuclear weapons, eventually concentrated minds in Washington DC. Famously, Winston Churchill defined Russia as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma and his words in 1939 spoke eloquently to the Western sense of Moscow as the other, a menacing land that plays by its own rules. It's been 30 years since the USSR collapsed. Over a 100 years have passed since the UK, US and others fought against the Red Army and occupied Russian cities. Yet, this geopolitical saga remains ongoing. Russia and America nearly collided and have conflicting interests including in Syria in 2020 and 2021. On the positive side, no one has pushed that red button and nuked one another yet. Even though the two hate each other, let's hope that the nuclear option is never used. You have been listening to an Alternative History Podcast. Please like, subscribe, follow and comment on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you for listening.